This is Dr. Jim Cox, and again, this is October the 9th, 2023, and we're looking at Ron Rhodes' book, Basic Bible Prophecy. We're looking back at chapter 14, though we did take a little peek uh, in chapter 15 on the last hour talking about what's going on in Israel in the attack by Hamas. And uh, let me remind you again that uh, next week, or next meeting, we will not be meeting. I'll send out an email to that extent, but we will be meeting both dates in November. So the second and fourth Monday in November, we will be meeting, but not the fourth Monday in October. All right, everybody. But I'll send out a reminder to let you know so you don't forget. All right, well, we're going to try to finish up chapter 14, and, and I'm pretty sure we can do that this hour. And we have, we. I didn't uh, hand out the handouts again, but these are handouts that we handed out a couple meetings ago. And we got to all the handouts except for one, and that was, let me give you the, the title here. It's called Life in Eternity. Life in Eternity. And you'll see it on one of your handouts it was on the back of the handout. The front side had God City, New Jerusalem. God City, New Jerusalem. And on the back side was Life in Eternity. Okay. If you don't happen to have it, uh, we have copies out there. And uh, feel free to take another one. But let me go through. And uh, this indicates what's going to be life life is going to be like in the eternal state. So, all right, so let me go. The first thing that, that and again, I'm, I'm going from um, a talk given by Andy Woods. He's a pastor at Sugarland Bible Church. And so I adapted his talk and uh, made this handout up. I want to give him credit for putting this together. So the first type of characteristic we're going to see of our life in the eternal state is unbroken fellowship with God. And uh, Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself be with them as their God. And so today, of course, we can break our fellowship with God. We're not born out of his family ever. Once we've received Jesus as our Savior, we're adopted in the family. But the communication can be broken because of sin in our life. And so it tells us in Scripture that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In 1 John 1 9. And so we confess and agree with him that we've done wrong, restore our fellowship with him. So when we sin, we don't lose our salvation. We just lose our fellowship. We know that when we accept Christ, we have eternal life. It tells us in John 5:24, it says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who has my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life will not come into judgment and is passed from death to life. Those are things already done. But we can break that fellowship. So when we're in the eternal state, 
that fellowship will never be broken. Always be in fellowship with God our Father and the Lamb. Second characteristic he mentions is service. It says in Revelation 22, 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And I also uh, put in here Colossians 3, 22 through 24. Although he didn't mention this, I thought it was relevant. It says, slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work hardly as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Certainly when we're there, we'll be serving the Lord Christ. But even here, everything we do is supposed to be serving him. Back when I was doing my PhD uh, and doing my degree, uh, we moved back from Virginia. I was teaching out there at Virginia Tech. And, uh, and so we decided to stay at Carol's parents in Danville. And then I would drive over to Champaign to use the computer and meet with my faculty and so forth. But it got to the point of the uncertainty that they would accept what I was doing that I physically got ill getting up at six o'clock in the morning to work on my thesis. And I was having my devotions and I came across Colossians 3, 23 and 24. And it said, whatever I do, we're currently serving the Lord and not men. And it dawned on me, I could do this thesis for him, for my Lord, regardless whether they accepted it or not. And I would be rewarded because I'm doing it for Jesus. You know what? I didn't get sick anymore. And I did finish my thesis, and here I am. <laughs> that verse made a total difference in my attitude. It allowed me to continue to work knowing that God was with me because I was, had the right motivation for doing it. Can you imagine our motivation when he's there? And we're in eternity and we're in the presence of the Lord Jesus and God the Father. Serving him wholeheartedly. You can say, well, what will we be doing? It doesn't lay it out, but it'll probably be pretty interesting. Imagine if we get an assignment from God, it's going to be Pretty interesting, pretty fulfilling, I would imagine. I believe that he would have us do useful work, right? Well, the next characteristic is fulfillment. Revelation 22:17 says, the spirit and bride say, come, let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And so this water of life, this being spirit-filled, will be fulfilling. There'll be satisfaction. Revelation 7, 16 through 17 says, they shall hunger no more, near thirst anymore, 
The sun shall not strike the nor any, nor any scorching heat. The lamb is in the midst of the throne and will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Also Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So whatever we're going to experience in eternity will be fullness of joy. That's what Jesus said in John 10, 10, I came that you might have life and have it in abundance, in fullness. And how much more will that be in eternity in his presence? Also rest. Revelation 14, 13, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And I, I think part of that rest will be peacefulness. Even here, uh, Jesus said in John 14, 27, 14, 26, says, he says, my peace I give to you, now as the world gives do I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's what Jesus said. That he gives us peace, not like the world's peace. He gives us an inner peace, John 14, 27. And knowledge, in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so we will have much more knowledge. We'll probably have full use of our brain. Some people say we only use about 10% of our brain, and some people use less than that, right? <laughs> I think they're driving on the road. They, they pass me and cut me off, but uh, I think. But in any case, we'll be so alert and so aware and we'll have an ability that we don't have now in terms of our capacity to, to think and reason. And I think even our senses will be way better than they are now with our glorified bodies. But we'll have knowledge. And yet, I think God will give us things to even further our knowledge along the way as well. Ruling and reigning, Revelation 22, 5, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And that's us, folks. I'm not exactly sure the parameters of what we'll be reigning over, but he's going to use this to help administrate his universe. Worship, Revelation 7, 11, and 12. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders, and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Revelation 4, 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. 
Revelation 5.9, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And if you can think of the greatest worship experience that you have had in any service, this will be way better than that. There'll be true worship. Nothing, you won't have a sin nature to interfere with that. You won't have a distraction of other things. Our focus will be on God. And we'll worship um, in such a way that he'd be glorified. Then we'll have a glorified body. We talked about this before. It doesn't hurt to remind yourself of what we talked about. 1 Corinthians 15, 43 to 44. So is it with the resurrection of the dead? What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And so we see a comparison here. The earthly body is weak, but we're going to have a strong, powerful body. The earthly body is perishable, but we're going to have an imperishable body. The earthly body is a lowly body, but we're going to have a glorious body. The earthly body is natural, but we're going to have a spiritual body. There's no sin consequences because we do not have that old nature. Revelation 22:2, through the middle of the street, also on the inner side of the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. I looked this up. I was curious after we had our last class, and I uh, I did look into about 15 commentators about how they commented on this passage. First of all, the healing of the nations. Why would there be healing when we have glorified bodies? And so, here's the best answer I could come up with. And uh, some, of course, tried to spiritualize it. But some did take it pretty literally. And basically, what it says is this word healing means therapeutic. And what that means is that somehow eating the fruit and somehow, and I'm not sure how the leaves will be making tea or what, I don't know, it doesn't tell us. But somehow the leaves and the fruit will enhance our ability to experience the gloriousness of God. It'll enhance our experience. It's not for healing, it doesn't heal us but it enhances us. Better than magic mushrooms, I think. Okay, go ahead. I have a note that it promotes well-being. Yes, it helps your well-being. It's part of that enhancement. Somehow enhances our experience. That's about as much as anyone would say in that. Why? Because there's not much to go on here, right? God told us as much as he wanted us to know. But it does let me know that just like Jesus could, we'll have the ability to eat. 
And we probably won't gain an ounce. Won't that be wonderful? <laughs> and we'll be able to eat fruit for sure. One, one commentator said, I don't know if we'll eat meat, but we'll definitely be eating some fruit. <laughs> so, but in any case, we have that. And also, it appears that there'll be time, as we mentioned, because the fruit grows monthly. Now, how that's kept track of, I'll leave that to God. But it seems there is some level of understanding time, yet we're in eternity. So, but I did look that up and just to see uh, if anyone had more insight than what I could read by looking at it. And that was basically the conclusion without, uh, without making just a symbol of some sort. Some people said it was like we would have a rich spiritual relationship with our Lord. And that's what's represented here. But I like to take a little bit more literally than that. It, uh, and that certainly could be true as well on that. All right. So I did look it up as promised. And I did think about it. Eternal. Revelation 22.5. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. The Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. So again, just forever and ever. It's hard to even imagine that. It's, we don't think in terms of eternity. And yet, this life is one little dot compared to all of eternity. It's pretty unbelievable. And time and nations. Revelation 21, 24 says, By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Revelation 21, 26, And they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Revelation 22, 2, Through the ministry of the sea, also on either side of the the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, healing its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So it appears that there'll still be some type of organization of, of people making nations. Now, as we said before, during the millennium, Israel is a priority. God is satisfying all the promises made to Abraham through his descendants, Israel, and all those promises will be fulfilled. So they're given, the nation of Israel is given a priority during the millennium. However, during the eternal state, it doesn't seem to distinguish them in terms of priority from other nations. That all the glory of any nation will be given to God and to the Lamb. Jesus Christ. That's why it says the nation will be the glory into the city here. It'll be passed on to them. Now we had a couple of questions still remaining. Any questions on that, folks? Anything? Okay. So one question was, will we have intermediate bodies when we die? Or will we be given, or will we be just floating around in some type of spiritual form? And uh, you can remind me, did I, did I uh, give you the response of Erwin Lutzer? Did I, did I give you that or not? No, okay. I didn't think I did. But I like his response to this. He wrote a book 
It's still published called One Minute After You Die by Moody Publishers. One Minute After You Die. And here's his response to this question about intermediate bodies. And I thought it was very good. So let me, let me read you his response. You know what we're talking about, right? After we die, what kind of body do we have before we're resurrected? That's the intermediate state, before we get glorified bodies. Okay, here's what he writes. The question on our minds is this. What kind of body do the saints have in heaven now? Since the permanent resurrection body is still future, what kind of an existence do believers have even now as you're reading this book? Since the resurrection of the body is future, are the present saints in heaven disembodied spirits? Or do they have some kind of temporary intermediate body that will be discarded on the day of resurrection, the day when we shall receive our permanent glorified bodies? The point of this agreement is over Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.1. And Paul writes, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The question is to what period in the future does he refer to when he speaks of our having a building from God, eternal in the heavens? Do we have that building, a body at death, or do we receive it at the future resurrection? Paul shrinks from the idea that his soul would live through a period of nakedness, a time when it would exist without a body. One explanation is that God creates a body for these believers and that this explains how the redeemed in heaven can relate to Christ and to one another. Since departed believers can sing the praises of God and communicate with one another, it seems that they must have a body in which to do so. What is more, at the point of transition between life and death, some have actually testified that they saw departed relatives awaiting their arrival. That points to the conclusion that the saints in heaven already have recognizable bodies. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appeared in some kind of body, though neither yet had, has his permanent resurrection body. Admittedly, Elijah was taken up to heaven without dying, and Moses was buried on Mount Nebo, Nebo by God, but they also still await the resurrection. Yet there they were, talking, communicating, and evidently recognizable to Peter, James, and John. The rich man who died and went to Hades must have had a body since he was able to use human speech and Wanda's tongue cooled. He had eyes to see and ears to hear. His body of whatever kind was sensitive to pain as recognizable to Lazarus who was on the other side of the great divide. Usually we think of spirits as unable to perform such functions. Or we must ask ourselves, if the saints already have bodies in heaven, albeit temporary ones, why does Paul place such an emphasis on the resurrection in his writings? He clearly implies that the saints in heaven today are incomplete in an unnatural state. So a second plausible explanation might be that the souls of the departed dead may in some ways have the functions of a body. If that is the case, it would explain how they can communicate with one another and have a visible presence in heaven. These capabilities of the soul are implied in Revelation 6, 9, and 10, which was quoted earlier. The souls that were underneath the altar had a voice with which they were able to cry up to God. And what is more, these souls were actually given white robes to wear as a way for God to avenge them. 
Admittedly, the word psychos, translated souls, has a broad meaning and can be also translated lives or persons, but that would give credence to the view that souls can take upon themselves shape and bodily characteristics. If that seems strange to us, it may well be that our concept of the soul is too limited. We cannot be sure which of these views is correct. Of this much we may be certain, believers go directly into the presence of Christ at death. They are conscious and in command of their faculties. As D.L. Moody said before he died, soon you will read in the papers that Moody is dead. Don't believe it, for in that moment I will be more alive than I have ever been. We do not have to know exactly what kind of body we will have in order to have assurance our personalities will continue. We will be the same people we were on earth, we'll have the same thoughts, feelings, and desires. Though our struggles with sin will be over, we will be aware of who we really are. There will be no doubt in our minds that we have just moved from one place to another without an intermediate stop, and yet we will await the final resurrection. I don't know about you, but I like that. It's a very good explanation. And some people say, well, you know, those souls underneath the altar, uh, they didn't have to be material, but it says that John saw them. How could he see something that was just spirit? He'd have to see something physical to know that they were there. So I lean towards saying we'll have some type of intermediate body something that we can recognize each other and communicate. That would seem to me what I would agree with the examples that he gave. In fact, before I found his quote, I came up with those examples myself about why I would justify an intermediate body. And I believe that when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, and then in Philippians 1, 23 says, it's better that I depart and be with the Lord. Why would that be better if he's just going to be a spirit? <laughs> I think he imagined himself as having a, a physical body being with the Lord and being able to communicate. So there's that one. And the other question we had, and I won't say too much about this one because we talked about it, is that the question came up, when we had the new heaven, the new earth, Will it be just renovated or will it be recreated? And it boils down about half and half. About half the people I looked at say, no, it's going to be recreated out of nothing. And half the people, like Randy Alcorn, wrote the book Heaven. He has the belief that it's going to be a renovation, complete renovation. Now your author, Ron Rhodes, uh, he's changed his mind. He wrote initially that it would be a renovation. But more recently he wrote another book and in that one he thinks it's going to be a recreation. So he changed his mind for some reason. And uh, so, well no when we get there, but whatever, here's my attitude. It really doesn't make any difference. Because Paul said, I has not seen, ears not heard, or the mind conceived what God has prepared for those that love him. It's going to be greater than we can even imagine. Whether it's renovated or it's recreated, it'll be fullness of joy.
it'll be something that we can't even anticipate. And I don't think we'll have any complaints at all. I think we'll be satisfied. I could read you quotes on both sides, but I don't, I don't, I don't think that's necessary to do that. All right. Let me finish this chapter by reading at the very end. He has a good section here. And I'll tell you what page we're on. Uh, on page 168 of the book. And I like this section he put in here. We're not going to go through all the verses. I'm just going to read what he, he wrote. And it's called, We Will Be Privileged to Enjoy a Grand Reversal. It's right at the end of the chapter. It says, God will bring about, again, I'm reading on page 168. In the beginning, oh, excuse me. God will bring about an incredible grand reversal for us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the eternal state, a new heavens and a new earth await us. In the beginning, the sun and moon were created as two great lights. The eternal state entails an eternal city where there's no longer any need for such light, for the glory of God lights up the eternal city of the redeemed. In the beginning, God created the night. The eternal state involves a nightless eternity. In the beginning, God created the seas. The new earth in the eternal state will no longer have a sea. In the beginning, human beings succumb to Satan's temptations. In the eternal state, Satan will be eternally quarantined from the people of God and be in the lake of fire. In the beginning, God pronounced a curse following humankind's fall into sin. In the eternal state, there'll be no more curse. In the beginning, paradise was lost. In the eternal state, paradise will be gloriously restored for redeemed humans. In the beginning, Adam and Eve were barred from the tree of life. In the eternal state, redeemed humans will enjoy restoration to the tree of life. In the beginning, tears, death, and mourning entered human existence. In the eternal state, tears, death, and mourning will be forever absent from the redeemed. Even sore backs. Okay, I just threw that in there. In the beginning, a redeemer was promised. In the eternal state, the victorious redeemer reigns. How wondrous it will all be. Praise God on that. Okay, we're going to come over to chapter 15 now. And I am going to read part of his introduction here. And he points out a couple things here at the beginning. And this is on page 173 of the text. He says, we have covered a lot of ground in this book. You'd probably agree with that, wouldn't you folks? So far we examined the who, what, and when of Bible prophecy. And the present chapter will shift our attention to the where of Bible prophecy. Of course, I've already touched on where certain prophetic events will unfold in the world, but only in a minimalistic and somewhat disjointed way. We'll examine the details in this and the next chapter. My purpose will be to paint prophetic geography using broad strokes to give you the big picture of end times geography. I must remind you yet again that each category of this book, including where, represents a different vantage point in our study of prophecy. 
Taken together, these vantage points provide a full, complete, composite understanding of Bible prophecy. I grant that there is some repetition along the way. But surprise, this is by design. Did you know the ancient Jews used repetition as a primary teaching tool? They use this tool because it works. The more often you are exposed to a truth, especially from different vantage points, the better you'll be able to retain that truth in your mind. One modern teaching expert tells us that repetition is the mother of all learning. Another says that repetition is the first principle of all learning. Yet another says that repetition is the key to mastery. Please believe me when I tell you that repetition is your friend. At the outset of the book, I promise you that you become conversant in Bible prophecy. Repetition that involves different vantage points makes this goal attainable. So I wanted to warn you that this section is somewhat repetitious <laughs> because we discussed these things before. And so we'll go through them a little faster than we did the first time, somewhat. He does have a number of tables that we'll go through since he adds those and it's worth it to look at those and look at the verses that underlie those tables. But you'll say, well, didn't we talk about this before? Yes, we did that. And uh, it reminded me of, a, of a, a guy by the name of John Gregory. He was a professor at the University of Illinois in Champaign, Urbana. If you've ever been on the campus, we have Gregory Hall. That's named for John Gregory. And he wrote a classic book, book called The Seven Laws of Teaching. And one of the laws of teaching, I read through it because I wanted to be a better teacher. <laughs> and one of the laws of teaching were review, 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 review. <laughs> I said, whoa, okay, review. So that's what we're doing here basically in these two chapters is somewhat of a review of what we looked at over the whole thing. So I just wanted to uh, say that. Also, if you look in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, uh, Peter basically says to his audience, I've talked about these things before, so you already know them, but it's a good that I remind you of them again. <laughs> he actually says that. It's good that I give you a reminder again, even though I know you know these already. So we're kind of doing that right here in this chapter. So the first thing, you know, let, me, let me move my notes up to where I am on here. Here we go. Okay. So the first thing he covers here is the centrality of Israel. And we just talked about that tonight. Went through how important Israel is to God. That's his treasure possession. And that the land is his. And that's what we see here. We see the same thing. In fact, in the last times, when the Armageddon occurs and we see the Antichrist trying to destroy Israel, we see that he'll do an invasion of Jerusalem and all the nations will be involved. And I've heard prophecy teachers say, well, that must include the United States also because all nations will try to destroy Israel and there'll be an invasion of Jerusalem. And we read that in Zechariah chapters 12 first few verses in chapter 14 and it talks about the attack on Jerusalem and uh, what he says here on um, 
I'm going to skip forward here. He does have a paragraph here that's interesting on 175, right before the quote at the bottom about the apple of God's eye, which I referred to earlier. He, he writes, he says, despite any temporary peace accords made with Israel, you can bank on the fact that this invasion and the destruction of the invaders will one day occur. That's talking about the invasion by Russia and Iran in the future. On page 176, he writes, the first paragraph, he says, one of the most magnificent manifestations of God's grace is his miraculous preservation of Israel for the past 2,700 years. Just think about it. After Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in AD 70, the Jews were dispensed to more than 130 nations around the world. The Jews were mistreated and relentlessly persecuted wherever they went. And yet, thousands of years later, their national existence and either language have been fully restored. You know God exists. People say, how do you know God exists? The Jewish nation. <laughs> they wouldn't exist unless God existed. It would be impossible for a nation being spread over 2,000 years to be able to come back and be a nation again. So the preservation of the Jews is probably the best summed up in Psalm 124, which was originally written in the context of Israel, Israel's wilderness wanderings. I think that all who read it will see its modern application. Let me go ahead and read it for us. What if the Lord had not been on our side? Let all Israel repeat. What if the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us? They would have swallowed us alive in their burning anger. The waters would have engulfed us. A torrent would have overwhelmed us. Yet the raging waters of their fury would have overwhelmed our very lives. Praise the Lord who did not let their teeth tear us apart. We escaped like a bird from the hunter's trap. The trap is broken we are free. Our help is from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He says the amazing survival of Israel over thousands of years and against all odds has led one Jewish commentator to speculate. He says, if the story of Israel were submitted as a movie script, it would be rejected for being too fantastic to believe. After all, the restoration of sovereignty in our ancestral homeland after 2,000 years, the return of the exiles of our people from across the globe, the defense of Israel against the implacable enemies, and the transformation of Israel from a desert backwater to a global technological power seems to defy both history and logic. Israel's preservation is an incredible thing to ponder. Pretty unbelievable, right, folks? Pretty unbelievable. Yeah, let's just, I'm not going to get too far here, but the first, it says, major prophetic events for Israel. In the, in the table, it says, Israel was prophesied to be reborn as a nation. This was fulfilled in May 14, 1948. And we talked about this before, but he cites here Ezekiel 37. Let's take a brief look at this. And I think I'll end with this tonight as we get this. But it says, Ezekiel 37, you can feel free to turn there if you have your Bibles, but let me read it for us. 
says, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out of the spirit of the Lord and sent me down the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. That means they were very dead, <laughs> very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and you will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you. And you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound, and a, behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to bone, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the four winds, to, excuse me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus said the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O people, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, I will do and I will do it, declares the Lord. Ezekiel 36, 24 says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And so what we see in this passage is like three stages. The first stage are the dry bones, very dry bones. And this is when Israel was not a nation. They're just a bunch of bones spread, dispersed. And then the next stage we're seeing is that the bones are coming together. We're seeing sinew, tendon, skin cover, but there's no life. And that would represent Israel coming back into the land in unbelief. People say, well, this is not the Israel the Bible predicts because it should be a nation that believes in their God. No, what we see in scripture is a nation coming back under the sovereignty of God, but in unbelief. And that's what we have today. 90% or more of Israel are unbelief. They're secular. But then there'll be a time in the future when God breathes life into the nation and they become spiritually alive. They have the breath in them. And when does that occur, folks? When does that occur? When Jesus, Paul. When, Jesus when, he, when he, when they're trapped, it looks like they're gonna be wiped out by the Antichrist. And they say, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Come and save us. We turn to you, Messiah. And Jesus appears. And it says in Zechariah 12.10, it says they'll, they'll see the one they have pierced and they'll mourn, mourn for him as a lost only son. They'll all accept him as the Messiah and he'll come and save them. And that's when that breath comes in them. They'll be spiritually alive and God's Holy Spirit will be poured over them. And it tells us a little later in, in chapter 12, Zechariah, that all sins are actually in 13, first, first couple of verses, that all sin will be removed from Israel. And God will fulfill what he promised way back when Ezekiel wrote this back in 6th century B.C., Remember that Nebuchadnezzar came in in 586 B.C. Ezekiel was carried off in 597 B.C. to go to Babylon. And there in Chaldea, Babylon, he wrote and prophesied this. And so this is what we're seeing today coming true. We know that the prophecies are being unsealed and we're seeing it before our eyes. We're in the second stage of the Valley of the Dry Bones right now. And when we get to the end of the tribulation period, we'll see the third stage come to fruition. Glorious, isn't it? God tells us what's going to happen. Well, that's it for the night, folks. I'm going to close in prayer for us. If you have any questions, I'll stick around and try to answer those for you. Remember, we're not meeting in the fourth Monday of the month this month, but we will meet both times in November. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. And again, just a reminder of your sovereignty. But we do pray for the Israel and the people of Israel. You tell us in your scripture to pay, pray for peace for them. And we do, Lord. We pray that your sovereignty would go forth. That you would guard your nation, your, your treasured possession. And Father, we thank you that, that you're in charge. And Father, we pray if this is what we see in, in, in Scripture described in Psalm 83. Father, that would just give us the knowledge and encouragement that you're working out your plan. And we know that, given according to your plan, that you're sending your Son back for us, that we might be caught up in the air, caught up in the clouds to meet him in the air and be with him forever, is, can't be far off, our blessed hope. Father, we thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are our sovereign God, that you're a God that, that's faithful, a God that's loving, a good God, a God that has infinite wisdom. We know you don't make mistakes, and we give you the praise and glory for that. I pray that you'd help us this week to walk worthy of who you are, that we would live in such a way that when people see us, they would see you. Father, well, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit, which helps us to really understand these things. And we give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have a good night, folks. Be safe on the way home. <laughs>